0: There's a much-discussed scene in The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis's final volume in the renowned Chronicles of Narnia series. Aslan the lion is the Christ figure in the series, if you're not aware of this fictional work. Tash is a hideous and evil false god. There's a young prince by the name of Amesh who despises Aslan, the true Savior, and he serves Tash, this evil god, with lifelong devotion. And Amesh dies and enters what is the equivalent of heaven, and he believes he's entered into Tash's kingdom. He's shocked to see Aslan running after him, approaching him. And as he realizes that this is Aslan's kingdom, Amesh fully expects to die. And he confesses to Aslan, I am no son of thine, but the servant of Tash. Rather than destroying Emesh, Aslan says, Child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me. So Emesh says, I am no son of thine in eternity. And Aslan says, no, you're wrong. You are my child. The underlying theology is fairly clear. It is the belief that people can be saved by Christ in this life without knowing it. They discover this truth in eternity. What Lewis asserts in fictional form, others have sought to defend biblically. In his book, A Wideness in God's Mercy, theologian Clark Pinnock argues persuasively that no one can be saved apart from the death and resurrection of Christ. But he also argues that a vast number of people are saved by Jesus who will never know this until they enter into eternity. by responding sufficiently to the evidences they see of the true God in false gods, I'll let you chew on that point, but in responding to the evidences of the true God that they see and serve in false gods, they are saved by Jesus nonetheless. Pinnock's defense of the necessity of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus is articulate, it is well-reasoned. I have it on file because it is a tremendous statement of that truth. But his defense of the idea that people are saved through Jesus without knowing it simply does not square with Scripture. Scripture. This is an idea that can be articulated. In fact, it might make some parents happy as they read a fictional series to their parents that a lion doesn't eat a man. But with all of the fun aside, this is a very serious matter. And it is a matter that does not square with what the Bible teaches. Sinners are responsible to place conscious faith in the gospel. This is a clear instruction of God's word. John 3:16 says that whoever believes in him should not perish. In John 3 and verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It's not something that will be worked out in eternity. The condemnation already stands on the basis that one has not placed conscious faith in Christ. This is the teaching of Scripture. In John 6, Jesus says, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Romans chapter 10 For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation to those who call on the Lord Jesus Christ. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? Clearly, they cannot. Not in a saving way. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? It's ridiculous, it's impossible. And how are they to hear without someone preaching that Word? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Unless the message of the Gospel is taken to someone to respond and believe? This is clearly what God is saying. Summarized this way, in Paul's writing to the Romans, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. It is through the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified and risen that saving faith is realized on the part of those who believe and call on the name of the Lord to be saved. John chapter 1 and verse 12, But to all who did receive Him, there is many who reject Him, but to those who receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So on the authority of Scripture, we reject the position that salvation is received apart from a person's conscious faith in the Gospel. There must be the exercise of the will, the exercise of faith to turn from sin and to embrace Christ as Savior. People are not saved unknowingly. This is not something that will be discovered in eternity. The Bible simply does not declare such an idea. Sinners are held responsible to exercise their God-given will in obedience to the Gospel. Romans 10 and verse 16. They must choose to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. John one twelve. But having said this, the Bible also teaches that God sovereignly ordains all that comes to pass. He has everything to do with everything, including the salvation of the lost. While we cannot fully comprehend how this works, God's sovereign ordination and governance of all that comes to pass works compatibly with the exercise of free human choices. So we established last week that while divine sovereignty is unlimited, human freedom is limited, By the circumstances of life and by our natures. There is genuine human freedom, but that freedom is constricted on some level. It's not absolutely free, it is constricted by the circumstances of our life and by the nature of who we are. We will choose what we want when we are free. But what we want is restricted by who we are and by the circumstances of life. And I would submit to you then today that divine sovereignty and human freedom work no differently in the area of personal salvation. This is not a distinct test case. Salvation of souls works within this framework. Let's think of it in this sense. Of human freedom and the bondage of the will as it applies to salvation. We learn as we turn to Ephesians chapter 2, if you'll make your way there, Ephesians chapter 2, that by nature our souls are spiritually lifeless, rendering us incapable of responding to the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Ephesians 2 1, Paul writes to the Ephesian believers, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You're believers now, but as we look to the past, you were once dead in your sins. You followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh, literally, and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were, verse 1, dead in trespasses and sins. We were, verse 3, by nature the children of God's wrath. Our inner bent, our want, and our desires. Where did they go? To what is the lost soul alive? As verses 2 and 3 indicate, the lost will... The lost have a will that is alive to the spirit of the age, to the message of Satan. The lost soul is alive to the passions of the flesh, to the ideas of this world that dishonor God. There's an aliveness to greed and to pride and sensuality and despondency, to hatred and self-love, to laziness and gluttony, to idolatries of all sorts. There's a passion there, an interest there. The nature drives one to choose such things. Now this is not to say that such a person cannot be a good neighbor. They may do nice things to other people and actually accomplish good in this world as far as what is is effective and constructive to other people. But having said that, the soul is dead to the life of God, to the righteousness and to the goodness of God. The lost are spiritually dead corpses. And corpses don't salivate. In our fallen nature, we cannot taste the bread of life. In our fallen nature, we cannot smell the wonderful aroma of the Gospel. We cannot see the glories of Jesus. In our natural state, we are spiritual corpses, lifeless to the wonders of God's grace. As Romans 3 says, very familiar with it, but thinking again on what it's actually saying, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, and think of this, no one seeks God. Why is that? Because... In our natural state, born into sin, we are dead to the righteousness of God. We cannot taste it, see it, feel it. You can put a a wonderful plate of food next to a corpse and there will be no eating and no interest. Again, this does not mean that unrighteous people don't do anything that's socially beneficial. They may live what seems to be largely productive lives, but in their relationship with God, they are lifeless. There's no spiritual well-being. Of course, Paul writes to the Corinthians, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ. They're blind to it. So as we think of human freedom and its restrictions, human freedoms are always restricted by one's nature. Sinners have genuine freedom to exercise their moral will. They are responsible to repent and trust the Gospel. However, because they are by nature in bondage to sin and Satan left to themselves, they can only want to choose wrong in rebellion to God. We head then to a second heading, and that is divine sovereignty in the salvation of sinners. Human bondage because of sin. We look then secondly at divine sovereignty in the salvation of sinners. How does the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, work out in the lives of these who are dead in sin? Thankfully, the good news is that God has taken the initiative to give life to dead souls. Verse 4, we know this but in capital letters and underline. What a wonderful but in this passage. This is who we are, lost in sin, incapable of responding to God because we're spiritually dead. However, but, verse 4, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That phrase, made us alive together with Christ, is the controlling statement of these first six verses. Really down in some sense through verse 10, but particularly in these first six verses. We have been made alive together with Christ. Verse 5, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now as we think on these glorious words, and I think if we know Christ as our Savior, there needs to be certain and specific affections of thanksgiving and rejoicing that this is who God is and what He's done for us in Christ. But as we look at these verses, we ask the question, who initiates salvation? Paul's answer is not here, well, you know, me and Jesus kind of worked this out together. Jesus died and paid the penalty of sin, and I exercised my human freedom and my will, and I, I chose God, and together, kind of 50-50, we cooperated and, and made this work, and now I'm saved. No, the answer that Paul gives is unabashedly one-sided. God made us alive with Christ. We are dead in sin. God made us alive. So nowhere is there any self-congratulation going on in this passage for choosing Christ. Paul points to the grace of the God who is rich in mercy and who is great in love so as to make dead souls live, to Him be the glory and honor. But we ask then secondly, the initiative is clearly with God, but secondly, why does God not initiate salvation with everyone? It's a concerning thought. It's not one that's particularly dealt with here, but it's one that naturally comes to mind. Why does God not initiate salvation with everyone? We know according to 2 Peter 3 and verse 9 that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is His desire. This is what He wants for people. Not willing that any should perish. We also know that the lost are called to obey the Gospel and are held responsible for rejecting it. Romans 10.16 There is judgment to come for those who willingly do not receive the Gospel of Christ. But why are some people who by nature do not want to repent and trust Christ as Lord and Savior made alive with Christ while the vast majority of souls remain in their sin, lifeless and dead to the wonders of Christ? What is it that moves God to give new birth to some? Now we ask that question at this place in Ephesians 2 in a way that's really not accurate chronologically because Paul has already answered that question. In fact, I think it is instructive that he addresses that issue first in the book of Ephesians. So we note as we go back to chapter 1, that God's initiative is based on His predestination of some to respond to the offer of life. Now this is not my idea. It's not the way we as human beings would tend to put it together. But as we humble ourselves and listen to what is being written, this is where Paul starts. Chapter 1 and verse 3. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Spiritual blessings we enjoy as born-again believers. He's talking about our relationship with Christ. Spiritual blessings that we enjoy as born-again believers are rooted in the fact that God, verse 4, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's the grounding of these spiritual blessings. He chose us in Him. When did He choose us for salvation? It is not, you'll note, when we received Him by faith but rather, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. God's love is so great, one commentator has noted, not only will it never end, it never had a beginning. God's love is eternal in both directions. Why did God choose us for what purpose or to what end does He save His people? Verse 4 says pointedly, the latter half of the verse, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He chooses a people to become like Christ. To be delivered from sin and to walk in righteousness. And then Paul at verse 5 continues to stress divine sovereignty and salvation when he says that in love, verse 5, God predestined us. In Christ, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. He predestines us for adoption through the work of Jesus Christ. Why did God predestine people to be saved? Well, many answer that God saw into the future that people would choose Him and God predestined those people unto salvation. In eternity past, God looks forward. He identifies those who will respond in human freedom and choose Him and He predestines them. Now this answer seems to resolve some problems, particularly the problem of fairness. If God looks into the future and saves the people who will choose Him, then you resolve the disconcerting idea that God chooses some and not others for salvation. The problem is with that solution is that it's not what the text says. Nor does any other text of Scripture. This is a rational imposition upon what this passage says, or any other like it. And for obvious reason, and perhaps every one of us in this room held that idea on some level at some place in time. But when we ask the Apostle Paul... What was the driving force behind God predestinating people for adoption as His children? He answers in verse 5 that it is all according to the purpose of His will. It is the will of God from eternity past that leads Him to predestine people unto salvation. That's what the text is saying. It is according to the purpose of His will. It is to the praise of His glorious grace. I really cannot see it any other way in light of this text and others like it. If God looked into the future and based predestination on what He foresaw would be the purpose of our will, then we should get the praise. We have to get the praise. God stands back in eternity past. He sees who will choose to receive Him as Savior. He predestines them. What is it at the heart of this that moves us to be saved? It is our will. It is our choice. And so we should receive the praise. We are, on some level, smarter than other people. We are, on some level, better than other people. We are, on some level, maybe just lucky. And certain circumstances were just right that we received the Gospel. In the end, on some level, it is we who would be praised because salvation would be based on the purpose of our will. This is radically different than what Paul says. It is according to the purpose of His will, His sovereign choice to choose people for salvation. He chose a world in which sin would be in order that by rescuing us from it, we would be able to see the glory of His grace and His love. And we would enter heaven, chapter 2 and verse 7, not congratulating ourselves for having responded to the Gospel in human freedom, but we enter into eternity proclaiming the mercies and the glories of a God who chose us by grace alone. And we notice how this emphasis on God's purpose continues to flow through the passage. All of this, verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So we notice in verse 9, the emphasis again on God's will and God's purpose. In verse 10, that will and purpose includes everything. Everything in heaven, everything in earth. Now notice verse 11. In Him then, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So verses 10 and 11, with their universal scope, are a powerful, succinct support to the doctrine that God ordains all that comes to pass and governs everything according to the purpose of His will. But I'd like you to focus on something here. Notice that this universal emphasis, all things in heaven and on earth, conforming to the counsel of God's will, this universal emphasis is found in a context that highlights what? It highlights the salvation of individuals. In Paul's mind, The premier exhibit of God's sovereign rule over all things is His eternal plan to save sinners. There is nothing in this world, along with creation, that more evidences the power of God than the salvation of dead souls. It's here that the sovereign purposes of God show themselves with such great glory. but here is what is so ironic. Ironically, what this text sees as the quintessential display of God's sovereign rule over all things, namely, the salvation of souls, many Christians remove to the periphery of God's governance. This salvation that displays God's sovereign purposes is moved outside of the center and really has very little to do with God's governing providence in in many people's view. Why is that? Well, they're so anxious to protect the doctrine of human freedom and responsibility that they downplay God's predestination and election of individuals to salvation. This de-emphasis is out of line with Scripture and entirely unnecessary if we remember That human freedom and divine sovereignty are fully compatible ideas. No one should relinquish the idea of human freedom. No one should relinquish the idea that people must respond to the Gospel. But this idea of our response to the Gospels should be at the very center of God's electing purposes people respond freely and willingly to the Gospel because God has enabled them to do so. This is what Paul is saying very clearly. There's others going perhaps a slightly different direction which say that God merely elects a plan. That the predestination and election in view here in Ephesians 1 is about electing a plan to adopt people and to save them. Well, God certainly has done that. A plan is certainly part of the process. But notice verse 3. It says, He blessed us. Verse 4, He chose us. Verse 5, He predestined us. This is not merely a plan that has been predestined. the reference here is to individuals who have come to saving faith in the Gospel. They have done so because they were chosen by Christ. They were chosen by God for salvation. Now there is certainly mystery here. And I honestly believe that in a number of places In our theology, we must allow ourselves to live with some mystery. Know that we will not entirely work this out and understand it. We cannot fully comprehend how God can predestine people to salvation and yet people have genuine freedom and responsibility to receive Christ as Savior. But as we labor to bend our minds to this reality, it is important that we consider something very carefully we must not lay down the truth that people must respond to the Gospel. But having said that, we must also recognize the priority of God's initiative over human choice in salvation. I say this in order to try to be faithful to the way that the Bible speaks on these matters because the human will is naturally in bondage to sin and Satan, because the whole purpose of salvation is to demonstrate the glory of God, the Bible consistently prioritizes God's initiative in salvation over human initiative. Said more simply, the emphasis of Scripture falls on God's choice of us, not on our choice of Him. As real as that is as important as it is for sinners to exercise their will in trusting Christ as Savior. But when we hear the words of Scripture, when we look at how it is laid out, the emphasis falls on divine sovereignty and initiative. And we need to come to terms with that. The commands of God and the judgment of God are rendered meaningless without human freedom. However, we must also stress what God stresses. John 1, verses 12 and 13, let's consider again. To all who did receive Him, in contrast to those who reject Christ, who believe in His name, and we see there the human element, they receive Christ. They believe in His name. He gave them the right to become the children of God. We notice here that they do not earn the right to become the children of God. Because of the exercise of their freedom, because they chose to repent and receive Christ as Savior, they've now earned the right to become children of God. Not at all. To those who respond, He gives the right. It is a gift of God. And notice what it says here. That they are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. It is not human will that produces salvation. It is not the will of man, but of God. God gives the right to salvation, and salvation comes of God, not of the will of man. Although the human will indeed reaches up to Christ. But that's not where the emphasis lies on the source of salvation. John 6, Jesus says very succinctly, no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. John 6, No one can come to Me unless it is granted him by the Father. And John 10, Jesus says the works that I do in My Father's name bear witness about Me. But you do not believe. Why? Because you've not trusted Me as your Savior. That's certainly true, but that's not what Jesus says. You do not believe because you are not part of My flock. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father, who has given them to Me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. Put two ideas together here. The Father gives Me My sheep. These people who are rejecting Christ, of them, Jesus says, you are not part of My flock. And that's why you are rejecting the Gospel. Now of course, the offer is there. And they may respond to that Gospel and in fact become Christ's followers. But the emphasis lies not on you have failed to do what you're supposed to do, The emphasis here lies on the fact you're not of My flock. And it's God the Father who gives the flock to Christ the Shepherd. Acts chapter 13, Paul at the synagogue of Pisidian Antioch says, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That is, proclaim the Gospel to all people. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That phrase, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, cannot embarrass us. It should not cause our blood pressure to rise and to start to get sweat on our forehead. We need to just be at peace with what God has said. The Bible is not minimizing the necessity of human response, but it is putting the initiative with God. Those who were appointed to eternal life believed. Indeed, in Ephesians 2, 8-9, where we know these words so well that by grace we've been saved through faith. This faith is itself not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The faith is real. The human response is real. We exercise in that moment what we want. But that faith and that decision to choose Christ as our Savior is itself a gift from God. The initiative is with Him. As We read last week First Peter 2, those who do not believe then stumble. And they're held morally accountable, but they stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. will pick up by God's grace the natural objection to that statement next week. I want to simply establish here for our thoughts that in light of these texts, it seems particularly dangerous to so emphasize the freedom and responsibility of man to repent and believe that we minimize the initiative and sovereign purposes of God and salvation. We must be cautious there. And all of this said simply in light of what the Bible reveals and what it says. We need to come as little children and listen to what God is saying. We must be careful not as little children to rationalize away what God is saying. For those of us who are parents, it kind of gives us the willies sometimes when we hear our children talking about why mom and dad think this or that is right, or why they're doing this or that. You hear the conversation and it's, it's chilling sometimes. They don't understand. They can't really understand all the nuances of what you're doing as a parent because of their immaturity. We serve a God of infinite wisdom and power. While we may not be able to entirely grasp this matter, it is dangerous for us to minimize what God has said. It is our calling to simply yield to the Word. Take your time. Work yourself through it. Be patient. But always be guided by the Word by what the Scriptures say. Now as we think on human responsibility, what does this say to us? Let's go back to where we began this morning. And when it comes to evangelism, I think what we need to understand from what Scripture teaches is that it is right and appropriate to give a strong and earnest appeal to the lost to respond to the Gospel they are responsible to do so. They will be judged for rejecting Christ. And we should come then with earnest appeal, with love in our voice, and with strength in our spirit to call people to repent and turn to Christ the Savior. This is never a slight on the sovereignty of God inherently. Inherently. It may be in the words of some, but it doesn't need to be. We should appeal to the will. We should appeal to a person's responsibility. We should proclaim the Gospel and say, you must be born again. If you do not know Christ as your Savior and the Spirit does not bear witness that you are a child of God, let me talk directly to you and say it is very dangerous at this point to say, well, I don't think God has elected me. I don't think I've been chosen by God for salvation. Let me say as carefully as I can, you have no idea whether that's the case or not. The fact that you've not come to understand the wonder of Christ crucified and risen does not mean that you will not come to that place. In fact, God may be using these very ideas and the words of Scripture to continue to give you the facts, the knowledge that is necessary, and by His mercy, someday He will give the gift of faith. But He holds out to you that call. Trust in Christ. Trust in His death to pay the penalty of your sin. Trust in His resurrection for life. Cling to Jesus Christ. Leave your sin and choose Him. Receive Him as your Savior. Maybe these words will be enlightened and you will embrace them for the salvation of your soul today or tomorrow or someday down the road. You don't know. Never tell God what He's done and not done. You need to get your nose out of His page and focus on your responsibility to repent and trust in Him as Savior. That's all you need to do. Switching to the divine sovereignty in election and predestination, there are many who would say that this will destroy evangelistic zeal. If we come to truly believe what the Bible certainly seems to be saying, that God elects individuals to salvation, He predestines certain individuals to come out of death into life, we will not share the Gospel of Christ, we will not proclaim it, there will be no need to do so. I always kind of laugh when I hear that because do you recognize whose words we're reading here today? This is the Apostle Paul who poured out his life as a drink offering for the elect. He gave himself with energies that are beyond almost imagination as he risked life and limb repeatedly to carry the Gospel with energy and earnestness and zeal to all kinds of unbelievers wherever God led him to go. If we get the idea that believing in the election and predestination of unbelievers will lead us to lay aside evangelistic zeal, we're simply missing the point. To not go after unbelievers on the basis of these truths is simply to disobey God and is to entirely misread the point. The point is not now, I can be lazy. I don't need to proclaim the Gospel. The point is that when I come to know the salvation that God has offered, I have such a strong desire to to proclaim that message. And it is my only confidence that anyone will ever respond. I believe, in fact, that I am proclaiming the gospel to people who are dead in trespasses and sins. How am I going to convince them to exercise faith and trust Christ? I can have the confidence that some will. Because God has His people out there. There are those that are a part of His flock. They're being brought into His flock. And I can take with confidence the Word of Christ knowing that people will respond according to His purposes by His mercies. This is our only protection really against manipulative schemes. That if I say it the right way, if I put on the right pressure, then I will get a person's will to switch over to the right side. It's not about me. I can trust in the providence of God. I can trust in His sovereign authority. I can trust in His eternal plan. My job is to take the message and proclaim it such that God will use my words to bring in some of His flock. And as I serve Him in some places to proclaim words of condemnation to those who reject Christ. I proclaim the Gospel because I love Christ. I proclaim the Gospel because I rejoice in the salvation that He's given. I proclaim the Gospel because I want to brag about the One I love. I proclaim the Gospel because I want to be part of what God is doing. Not because it relies on me. So the laziness response is simply the opposite end of the response that relies totally on self. To manipulate and to do the right sales pitch. They're both of the same source. They are saying that salvation really rests on our argumentation. In the one case, it all relies on me. I've got to tell everybody I can about Christ. In the other case, it relies on God, so I don't have to do anything. Both of them are relying on self. I want to proclaim the Gospel because I want to participate in what Christ is doing and proclaim the wonders of the salvation that I've received in Him. This has more to do than simply with evangelism. There is at the heart of this discussion a very significant application to worship. Please follow me here. And particularly, I speak for those that are in process. This is hard stuff. You can't quite agree with it. It just doesn't work with the way that you're seeing things in life at this point. We've all been there. So press on. Continue to consider the words of God. But please hear me at this point. This is not an academic debate. That's not what the election of God is meant to lead to. We're not simply to now ask questions about God's justice, to ask questions about God's fairness, to wonder why merely that some people never hear of Christ and how the purposes of God work out. That's not what this is meant to lead to. Ephesians 1 makes very clear that all of this discussion is to lead to the praise of His glorious grace. When we begin to turn from seeing salvation as primarily human response, and we begin to come to terms with the fact that God has chosen me for salvation from eternity past, the result is abject spiritual humility to be touched with the wonder of this thought. For reasons I cannot know, ultimately, He chose me for salvation. There is no answer in me as to why He did that. There's no answer but grace. There's no answer but His love. And it produces within us a sense of full security. I am His not because of what I figured out. I am His because of His eternal choice. And so I am His and secured in Him forever. Because He is working out His purpose in me. I don't deserve one ounce of that grace. It is all of grace. As we come to see that, the message of election and predestination humbles us. It brings us to our knees. It brings a new joy to our heart, a new confidence in God. It brings a humility. And it brings us together to worship this glorious grace. Christ, We don't come together then and assemble together as a church that's really centered in pride, self-congratulating ourselves for having chosen Christ, believing that evangelism depends on us and getting people to change their will. We come with the sense that in the wonder of it, in the depth of reasons we will never fully plumb, God chose me as His own. We are left silent before Him until that silence gives way to pure praise for His glorious grace. Let's bow before Him. Father, what do we say? We simply praise You as believers in Christ that there was a day when the Gospel was made alive to our souls. We praise You that we have been transformed and given life. And we praise You that someday by Your mercy, we will stand in heaven and not have to say, I am no child of Thine. But simply because of Your grace, we will say, Abba, Father, and praise You for eternity, for Your richness and mercy, Your greatness of love, and for Your electing salvation. We pause before You now and seek to sing that our silence and our abject spiritual poverty would well up with praise and thanksgiving to the glory of Your name. Help us as a people to worship. And for those that know not Christ as Savior, I pray that these words, this hearing of the Gospel again, would be the means that You would use to open their eyes to see and their soul to respond. And to reach out and say, yes, I receive Christ as the Chosen of the Lord. Abba, Father. We lay these requests at Your feet in the name of our Savior. Amen. Amen.